The Golden Notebook is a book which has a kind of a life of its own, a very lively life of its own, and it's because at the time I wrote it, it was a time of such contradictions, of such impossibilities. This is when the, all the comrades are finding out about uh, how awful the Soviet Union was. It was full of disappointment, sadness, anger. It was That was in the Golden Notebook, and that's the charge of the Golden Notebook. I know it. Other people will know it. But the people who read it now, say how funny they're reprinting the Golden Notebook. What a funny, after all these years. Well, I know why. That book has all these emotions in it. Hello, I'm Alicia Brogy. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. This time, we read Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook. We also talk to three experts, not two, as per usual, but three. <laughs> Alice Rideout, Roberta Rubinstein, and Susan Watkins. Yeah, we thought that because The Golden Notebook is a very formally interesting book and it takes place in several different compartmentalized sections, we would do something a little bit formally different with our podcast. So this episode is going to be a little different and it's going to be kind of compartmentalized. At the start of the episode, we heard Doris Lessing herself talking about the circumstances around the writing of The Golden Notebook. The audio comes courtesy of Web of Stories. So I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to Doris Lessing. And I'm going to tell you a little about the book. Then we'll hear from the experts and have a conversation about it. about Doris Lessing. Doris Lessing was born Doris May Taylor on the 22nd of October 1919 in Iran, then Persia, where her father worked in the Imperial Bank of Persia. Her parents were British and they moved the family to southern Rhodesia, which is present-day Zimbabwe, in 1925 to farm maize, where Lessing spent her formative years on the family farm. Lessing dropped out of school when she was 14, after which she was self-educated and read widely. She left home when she was 15 and began working as well as writing. She moved to Salisbury, which is now called Harare, and married her first husband called Frank Wisdom at the age of 19. They had a son and a daughter together, but after a few years, feeling herself to be trapped in a suffocating domestic situation that would make writing and living impossible, she divorced Frank and left the family home in 1943. She became part of a group of communists. They were called the Left Book Club, <laughs> one of whom was Gottfried Lessing, whom she would later marry and have a son with. This marriage also ended 
1949, after which she moved to London with her son. In 1950, she published The Grass is Singing, the first novel in what would be an enormous body of work. She was a prolific writer and published over 50 books, including novels in a range of genres, from realist novels to experimental to science fiction and even horror. She also wrote short stories, plays, librettos, and nonfiction. So she became disillusioned with communism after World War II and eventually left the Communist Party officially in 1954. But she remained politically active. She was vocal in campaigning against nuclear arms and the apartheid policies in South Africa and Rhodesia. And this led to these countries banning her in 1956. Because of her dissident views, actually, I found out that MI5 and MI6 built up a five-volume secret file on her <laughs> that was only made public in 2015. Amazing. I know, right? I mean, you've got to know you've got some sort of political clout when that happens. <laughs> Over her life, she received several honorary doctorates. She turned down a damehood and in 2007 was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. In 2008, she was ranked fifth on the Times' list of the 50 greatest British writers since 1945. Whether or not that means something is, I don't know what, but she was very highly regarded is what I'm saying. She died on the 17th of November, 2013, at the age of 94. So hers was a long and prolific career. And now, the moment you've been waiting for, finally, a cat corner for the ages. <laughs> tell us, Erica, tell us about Doris Lessing and cats. <laughs> There's so much to tell, I have to distill it down. In short, Doris Lessing loved cats. I mean, she loved cats. She wrote books about them. She wrote a book called Particularly Cats and Rufus and another one called The Old Age of El Magnifico. And these ones tell the history of her relationships with cats over her life. There are several photographs of Lessing on the back covers of her books that include her cats. <laughs> you can see a whole page of these photographs at dorislessing.org. I'm, I'm not going to get into all of the details, but there are many, many photographs over decades <laughs> of Doris Lessing with her cats. And she had some wonderful things to say about them. This is a quotation from one of her books about cats. This is a compendium of all her writing called On Cats. What a luxury a cat is. The moments of shocking and startling pleasure in a day. The feel of the beast. The soft sleekness under your palm. The warmth when you wake on a cold night. The grace and charm even in a quite ordinary workaday puss. Cat walks across your room, and in that lonely stalk you see leopard, or even panther, or it turns its head to acknowledge you, and the yellow blaze of those eyes tells you what an exotic visitor you have here. In this household friend, the cat who purrs as you stroke, or rub his chin, or scratch his head. <laughs> that is great. It's something about the otherness and the familiarity mm, of mm, cats, mm. which I really love. Okay. Enough about cats. Alicia, what is The Golden Notebook about and what's the story behind it? The Golden Notebook was originally published by the publishing house Michael Joseph in the UK in 1962 and by Simon Schuster in the US that same year. 
Lessing had already established herself with her debut novel, as Erica mentioned, The Grass is Singing, and she had published several books, but this was her breakthrough novel. In its rise to popularity, it was prominently identified with the feminist movement, an association that Doris Lessing often resisted. <laughs> it was also met with some controversy. So what, you might ask, is this book about? It's an intimate portrayal of a writer character by the name of Anna Wolfe. Her life in 1950s Britain is sustained by proceeds from an earlier novel that she's written. So she has ample time to reflect and to write, except that she complains she has writer's block. We meet Anna's closest friend, Molly, and follow Anna's thoughts on subjects as varied as her brief membership of the British Communist Party, capitalism, colonialism, motherhood, madness, menstruation, sexual independence, but also conventional desires and attitudes about sex. This is a book where large social and political themes are reflected in a private life that has been lived in Africa and in the UK, and in which everything is connected. That these major themes are connected to apparently minor aspects of Anna's life is worth bearing in mind, not least because in this episode, you will also hear about the experimental form of this book, which emphasizes its fragmentation. The novel is organized into sections, including free women, and four notebooks that Anna has used to write about different areas of her life. There's a black notebook with her accounts of earlier years in Southern Africa. There's a red notebook focused on the Communist Party. A yellow notebook tells about her intimate relationships through a fictional story. And a blue notebook is her diary. But the fifth golden notebook is where she tries to bring all these parts together. Hopefully that whirlwind introduction will keep you oriented in the conversations that follow with our various expert guests and, of course, between Erica and myself. The first notebook, if you will, is going to be provided by Alice Rideout. She's an associate professor of English at Algoma University in Canada. She's the co-editor of the books Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook After 50 and Doris Lessing Border Crossings. So she is one of the most qualified people in the world to reflect on the enduring social and political importance of this novel. If you look up any short biography of Doris Lessing on the internet, you're likely to read something similar to this. Doris Lessing was born Doris May Taylor in Persia, now Iran, on 22nd of October 1919 to British parents. Her family then moved to southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, where she grew up on a farm. In his BAMP Center talk with Eleanor Wachtel in 2015, Salman Rushdie reminds us that idea that you can't go home again is true of many of us. As L.P. Hartley expresses it so brilliantly in the opening line of The Go-Between, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. The experience of the immigrant makes this truth even more clearly apparent because the childhood home is geographically as well as temporally elsewhere. The experience of Doris Lessing renders these ideas even more sharply because the place of her birth and of her childhood have both ceased to exist geopolitically. 
Iran has replaced Persia, and Zimbabwe has replaced Southern Rhodesia. In The Golden Notebook, Lessing reflects upon her complex feelings about this loss through her character, Anna Wolfe. We don't tend to categorize Lessing as a nature writer, but the passages in The Golden Notebook describing the days Anna spent with a group of friends at the Mashopi Hotel are some of the most powerful and memorable in the novel. Repeatedly in The Golden Notebook, Anna takes herself to task for the nostalgia she expresses in these sections. This nostalgia has political implications in the post-colonial context of Lessing's writing. She was born in Persia because her father was working there as a clerk in the Imperial Bank of Persia and was brought up in Southern Rhodesia because he purchased the farm through a scheme designed to support the colonial settling of the region. Therefore, whatever their personal opinions and Lessing's autobiographical writings make it clear her father was highly critical of British government, Lessing's parents were part of the bureaucracy and methods of colonialism. In reviewing her own previous publication, which was set in Africa, Frontiers of War, Anna in the Golden Notebook is trying to work through these issues of complicity with colonial and racist structures of thought about Africa. And I put this in quotation marks as I mean it to signify a Western construction in much the same way as Edward Said taught us to think about the Orient. Lessing was what Ruth Useem in the 1950s termed a third culture kid, a child brought up by parents living outside their home culture. The term third culture is created by the complex interplay of cultural elements from the parents' home culture and those of the culture in which they currently reside. This childhood experience is marked by the cognitive dissonance of physically experiencing a place in all the ways that only children tend to do, playing in the dirt, capturing insects, climbing trees, closely observing birds and animals that build great familiarity while simultaneously being taught by their parents that this place is not home. Therefore, for Lessing, home has always been imaginary, illusionary, or even always elsewhere. In The Golden Notebook, Anna is writing in London, the center of what her parents have taught her is her home country. But the alienation she feels in that city is readily apparent if you even briefly compare her descriptions of the gray streets of London with any of the passages set at the Mashopi Hotel. One of the ways in which Anna copes with her sense of dislocation is to play the game, something she associates with childhood and comes back to towards the end of The Golden Notebook. The game involves recreating the room she is in, in her mind, and continuing to hold it there as she slowly moves her perspective outwards until her inner vision simultaneously sees the small room and the whole world at once. I identify this as a kind of located cosmopolitan thinking. Cosmopolitanism, or thinking of yourself as a citizen of the world, is sometimes critiqued for its lack of locatedness and commitment to a particular community. The game in The Golden Notebook encounters that criticism by challenging Anna to hold her own location in her mind alongside a vision of the whole world. This leads me to the issue of The Golden Notebook's place on the New York Public Library's 1995 list of books of the century. There have, of course, been great debates over the issue of canonicity implied by such a list, and the related concept of great books. Some people have argued that great books survive the test of time 
by being in some way monumental, standing and enduring while the winds of change blow around them. Others have argued that great books continue to be valuable to us by bowing in the face of those winds, waving to us and becoming reanimated as the times blow through. The second vision is the one Lessing herself seems to adhere to in her famous 1971 preface to The Golden Notebook. The book is alive and potent and fructifying and able to promote thought and discussion only when its plan and shape and intention are not understood. For me, one of the most powerful aspects of the Golden Notebook is that new 21st century contexts continue to enable me to reinterpret it and understand it anew. And I want to conclude with two specific examples of this. The first relates to climate change and the other to the recent racial reckoning that Black Lives Matter has urgently called us all to. The nostalgia Anna feels about Southern Rhodesia and criticizes herself for because of its potential complicity with a kind of imperial nostalgia, becomes even more complex in the face of our growing and increasingly widespread solostasia, a term coined by Glenn Albrecht to describe the homesickness of losing your home to environmental destruction, whether because of a dramatic weather event, climate change, pollution, forestry, mining, and so on. Anna's thinking through of the politics of nostalgia in this novel will become more alive and potent and fructifying and able to promote thought and discussion as more and more of us experience solastasia. The second example is a moment that has always seemed important and brave to me. It is when George is explaining to Anna and Willie his ethical dilemma, having learned that his mistress, the Mashopi cook's wife, has had a child by him. He is not providing for the child financially and feels that he should, but also realizes that doing so will reveal his affair and ruin his mistress's family. Anna offers an incredibly honest self-reflection on her reaction to this situation in which she admits, and then, and this was worse, I was surprised to find I resented the fact that the woman was black. I had imagined myself free of any such emotion, but it seemed I was not, and I was ashamed and angry with myself and with George. This moment offers us an honest and self-reflective example of the work required to decolonize our minds. such a rich reflection from Alice. So Erica, I also am dying to hear what you thought about this book. You are South African. I am. And you've lived in the UK. I have. And you are a literary scholar and a writer yourself, actually. So there are probably a lot of really interesting overlaps for you and perhaps differences. So I'd also love to hear what you thought about the book. To be honest, I was surprised by my experience of reading this novel. Yes, there's a lot of like biographical overlap with my own life, growing up a white person in South Africa, but growing up a white person in the 1980s and the 1990s in South Africa, that's quite different from like the 1940s mm. in what might be Zimbabwe. It's not ever identified specifically. 
So, yes, there is this weird kind of interplay between familiarity and strangeness. Alice points out that a lot of what happens in terms of the content in this novel really resonates today still. Lots of ideas around cosmopolitanism, say. But also, you know, the the questions around Black Lives Matter and Lessing's really clear-eyed self-scrutiny that comes through in Anna's really clear-eyed self-scrutiny. Yeah, these questions around complicity and belonging and how do we work to change the world for the better? And how do we reckon with the ways in which we've tried to do that and failed? The thing that I was struck by was how many of those same conversations that are happening among her characters, like in the Black Notebook, but also in terms of Anna's reflecting on her experience in the Communist Party, how much these are the same conversations that we continue to have. And I wasn't just struck by it. To be honest, it was something that made me frustrated and sad. It felt kind of disillusioning, even as the character herself feels disillusioned in this. I felt myself getting into that headspace as well. This feeling of nothing's changed in all these decades. We're still having the same conversations over and over again. The second line of the novel is, the point is that as far as I can see, everything's cracking up. Mm -hmm. For me, that mood of the way we've done things, despite our best intentions, has not really worked out very well. That really resonated for me. What about you? That mood really does seem to give energy to this book. And in my reading experience, I found that slightly unpleasant to be exposed to. It was sort of um, an oppressive mood of disillusionment yeah, yeah. and and going on for hundreds and hundreds of pages. It's so long. Yeah. And then the flip side to that, I think what I can admire in it is something you were you touched on briefly as well, this drive for honesty, for being unrelenting in her scrutiny of her own life and times, and also not blinded by the parameters of conventions that are inherited. And not just that are Mm. inherited though, not just traditions that are from the past, but conventions she's taking part of, forms that she sees herself falling into that are contemporary as well. I think that's connected to her reservations, especially her initial reservations with the way this book was taken up by feminism. Yeah, she used to like rant at them. Yeah, and she felt or at least in her 1971 introduction to the book, she talks about how if you're reading through this kind of lens, you're missing all these other aspects of what's going on. And that way in which form can constrain what you can see, that's interesting to me. The ruthless examination and the desire for truth that motivated it, I think gave a positive energy to the reading experience at the same time as there was this sort of dragging down, at least from my reading, of being around all this disillusioned disappointment that from the character. Yeah, she keeps going back to these horrible men and going for men who are committed elsewhere. Mm. And the, the one time she has a relationship with the American, who's called Saul Green, but then he's also called Milt somewhere else in the novel. The one time she has this relationship with a guy who like moves in and is there, they have this kind of mutual breakdown together. <laughs> Which is horrible. And he's only there for a few weeks. Yeah. That interleaving third-person omniscient novel or whatever it is called, Free Women, you know, that seems very sarcastic, that title, doesn't it? Yeah. 
Are these people very free? Yes. I think these themes, the central terms that recur make you question, how are these terms being used? You know, what is freedom for these women? And if freedom entails giving up responsibility in certain ways that a committed relationship requires, is that really freedom? They seem pretty trapped in their own cycles. And that's not just a question that I'm bringing to the book. Okay. It's a question I'm bringing to the book, (laughs) but Molly, the character (laughs) in the book does make this comment that reflects something of what I'm expressing as well. She's on the phone with Anna and she says, do you know what I was thinking yesterday, Anna? And then text goes on for a while. She has a lot of words, a lot of thoughts. Until it resumes saying, I thought that the generation after us are going to take one look at us and get married at 18, forbid divorces, and go in for strict moral codes and all that because the chaos otherwise is just too terrifying. (laughs) And that reflects this tension of wanting to pursue some kind of freedom, wanting to break old forms, but then having to live with the breakdown of those forms. And with the chaos that that entails, right? Yes. And the new constraints that those that chaos brings. Yeah. And so it's not just freedom from a past that was bad and that's easy, new start, fresh beginnings, happy ending. <laughs> but instead, you have to live with that ensuing chaos and really weigh up what was good about the past, what was bad about it, maybe from different angles. Yeah, totally. I think that there was something about this reading experience. It it feels like it anticipates, or Doris Lessing anticipates your reservations about the characters. And has, has the character mentioned things or has another character, as you said, like Molly say something. So it's like on, on all sides, it's quite an intense reading experience, actually, because you feel like you've been anticipated as you're coming through here. Did you feel that way? That she's so kind of self-aware, I think, or self-conscious? There's a real self-consciousness about this writing. There is absolutely a high degree of self-consciousness in this writing. And even the characters describe themselves in that way. I think that's part of what makes it such a stifling book to read. For me, Mm. (laughs) Doris Lessing writes this character, Anna, who shares many qualities with Doris Lessing. And then within the book, Anna is writing all these different versions of herself. And it feels so deeply self-involved and self-reflective. Solipsistic. Solipsistic. And one of the things that art can do is it can transform these kinds of internal explorations into something aesthetically powerful, something that reflects society in a larger way. And one of the questions in my mind when I was reading this book is, does it achieve that in my view? And does it achieve that still today as a second question? In what we heard from Alice, she really highlighted this enduring socio-historical relevance of the book. And I think you emphasize that as well. And there is a good argument for that. I'm sensing a but. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure if the intensive self-reflection came across to me as powerful with the passage of time as it might have at the time. And Mm. I think at that time... I saw this review from Irving Howe that was incredibly admiring of this book. And he he said things like, my own curiosity as a masculine outsider was enormous. <laughs> it's like slightly creepy, but also it feels very honest. Yeah. For here, he goes on to say, I felt was the way intellectual women really talk to one another when they feel free and unobserved. It makes the Bloomsbury writers seem a little quaint. 
I think what was interesting to me about his review was partly he's a great literary critic, but also that it was honest in this slightly off-putting way, gave me a sense of the impact of reading this at its time. Yeah, to to read about, like, she has this whole kind of section where she talks about, like, getting her period and managing it and having to, like, plan how she's going to move about the the day and, like, where she's going to change her tampon or, you know, like, that was actually, I thought, wow, yeah. 1962. Yes. And that isn't as shocking or exciting Mm-mm. in the same way today because it sells fine today. It's not new. Yeah. So Irving Howe ends up concluding, by any final reckoning, The Golden Notebook is a work of high seriousness. He goes on to say, it is the most absorbing and exciting piece of new fiction I have read in a decade. It moves with the beat of our time, and it is true. <laughs> it's quite a, quite a statement. And I do think that historical lens, it was really useful for my sense of appreciation of this book and why it has mattered. Moves with the beat of our time. Boom. I like that. <laughs> it makes me think of Jack Kerouac, actually. Oh, yes. <laughs> but I totally hear what you're saying about stifling. That sense of kind of solipsism, of being trapped, right? Mm. The same characters' names repeat, but they're different versions of each other. Like, we, there's only really a few characters we meet. They have different names in different sections of the book. Like, there's a couple of Pauls. There's a couple of Michaels. You know, one of them is a, a pilot and one of them is a lover in a story. One of the Michaels is the lover in real life. And the other Michael is the child in the story. And like, there's all this kind of repeating this, you know, two mirrors facing each other. Like it's a bit funhousey in that way. So it does pull you into a certain kind of stifling experience. And that's happening in terms of the content, this disillusionment, this thing of not being able to break out of the old cycles, even when you're trying to defy conventions. But it's also happening in the form, right? Yes. I think this is a great moment to introduce our next intervention from Roberta Rubinstein. But first, let's take a quick break. Roberta Rubinstein is Emerita Professor of Literature at American University. She has been interested in Doris Lessing since the beginning of her professional career and has published two books about Lessing's writings, The Novelistic Vision of Doris Lessing, Breaking the Forms of Consciousness, and Literary Half-Lives, Doris Lessing, Clancy Segal, and Romain Aklef. Like Alice Rideout, Roberta is also co-editor of Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook After 50. I would say... The novel's meaning is in its form. It's in its shape. They're inextricable. The way it's structured and the way Dorsessing deliberately breaks literary conventions. Let me elaborate. It was a very inventive way to pursue a whole series of ideas centering on a 30th woman living in London named Anna Wolfe as a way to try to keep her sanity, although it's not clear at the beginning for the reader that that's what she's doing. She divides her experiences into four notebooks. They're color-coded so that she can keep the subject matter separate. A black notebook about her time in Africa where Doris Lessing also grew up. 
a red notebook, which has to do with her political confusions, a yellow notebook, which is a novel within a novel in which she's examining through her alter ego how to go about writing about difficult experiences, intimate experiences, and a blue notebook, which is a diary. Each of these repeats four times in the same sequence. And they are bookended by a series of chapters, I guess I would call them, called Free Women, which are bookends of the narrative and are repeated five times. Doris Lessing claims she wrote this novel in precisely the order we read it, which is rather astonishing because it is definitely non-chronological and as a way to segue to talk more about issues of form and shape. She understood at the time she wrote it, and I'm now quoting Doris Lessing, the shape of this book should be enclosed and claustrophobic, so narcissistic that the subject matter must break through the form. This novel is an attempt to break the form. So a reader must try to understand what it means for our subject matter to break through the form. First, chronology. The novel begins, traditionally enough, in the first free women section. Begins in 1957, third person omniscient point of view. But soon after, the reader is plunged back into the events in Anna Wolf's life that happened in the 1940s and 1950s. So chronology is intentionally disrupted. Secondly, narrative reliability. This novel is told from multiple points of view, but all of them are Anna's. And they're fragmented because sometimes she remembers things differently. Sometimes she deliberately reshapes them. In addition, she, like other people, is affected by the passage of time, by the way we reconstruct memories, and in doing so, alter them because each time you retell something, you reshape it. So these are interpretations of experience. And her emotional distance is also important. In the Black Notebook, for example, she's looking back at events that happened when she still lived in Africa. By the time you get to the Blue Notebook, she's writing about experiences that are happening right now, literally, as she's writing about them. This leads to some other issues of form. Anna claims she has a writer's block. But when one looks at the novel of over 600 pages, you realize she writes obsessively. It's just she doesn't feel she can shape her ideas into a traditional novel. And she struggles with the problem of language itself, the disjunction between words and the experiences they describe. Or another way to put it is the raw material is what is happening to her and how she sees it. But as soon as she starts writing it, she's giving it a kind of aesthetic shape, which alters it. It's no longer the experience, but the aesthetic management of the experience, you might say. By the time you get to the later sections of the yellow and blue notebooks, she's playing with the difference between what's happening to her and how she would write about them. So there are synopses of stories that she hasn't written, almost like the kind of prompt for stories. And it turns out later that they're directly drawn from what she's living through. So these are all pieces. It's as if Doris Lessing wants us to see all these pieces of a woman's life and a life as a writer trying to make sense of her experience and also trying to put them into some sort of artistic shape. In addition, this novel is a metafiction. 
meaning it's fiction about fiction. That is, Anna is asking the question about what she writes, about how she can present her experience truthfully and honestly. And she examines herself doing so. So I would go back to conclude by saying The Golden Notebook is a masterpiece because of its ambitious structure and its attempt to break form. Like Virginia Woolf and other modernists who broke from old forms, they weren't doing it. And Doris Lessing wasn't doing it just for the sake of cleverness or being different, but because she felt the existing forms available to her were insufficient for what she wanted to do. And instead, this is what she did. She took experience apart, her experiences that were important in different degrees of emotional intensity, and put them together in a way that says the structure, the meaning of this novel is in its shape. useful to have Roberta bring us deeper into the form, which is very complex. There's a lot of self-consciousness in the use of form here. Even in the 1971 introduction, Lessing would speak about some of the formal elements very reflectively. She speaks about the way in which, and I'm quoting here, in the inner golden notebook, things have come together. The divisions have broken down. There's formlessness with the end of fragmentation, the triumph of the second theme, which is that of unity. So she's talking about the way that the form of breakdown itself leads through these false patterns to a kind of unity in this book. And that's interesting. She picks up that theme in the next paragraph Mm. to say this theme of breakdown that sometimes when people crack up, it is a way of self-healing of the inner self's dismissing false dichotomies and divisions has, of course, been written about by other people as well as me since then. And she goes on. Anna says at one point, If someone cracks up, what does that mean? At what point does a person about to fall to pieces say, I'm cracking up? And if I were to crack up, what form would it take? And then she says, Anna, Anna, I am Anna. She kept repeating. There's something about that, that thing of breakdown. I like what you're saying, though, about breakdown. I could see how Anna is trying to hold herself together by splitting herself apart in some ways, right? By compartmentalizing and putting everything into some sort of shape or some sort of form in these different notebooks. But I felt like the reading experience of this was, well, we've spoken about it being stifling and feeling kind of, you know, turning in on itself, the repetitions and things, but it demands a lot from you because you're Mm. trying to say, okay, who's Michael now and who's Paul and which one is which and where does it go? But you're also so much in this one person's point of view Mm. that is fragmented in certain ways. And I feel like there was something that happened to me while I was reading this novel. First of all, this is the first novel that my therapist actually told me to put down (laughs) because she was sensing some disintegration in me. No. The experience of reading this and the weird identifications that I felt with the character and maybe with Lessing herself did something strange to me. I had Mm. to put it aside for like a week just Mm. so I could recover myself and say, Erica, Erica, I am Erica. I think there was something about the form of it, the way it's written, 
that created a certain way of thinking in me. That is a really powerful expression of how literature can shape thoughts or interact with thoughts. Just immersing your mind in this way of thinking, this depiction of breakdown that also entails a formal element in which Hmm. the forms contribute to that for over 600 pages, it's really inundating you with the mood and habits of thought and perspective. It's inundating your mind in certain ways that if we take literature seriously, I think we have to also take seriously. What are the costs of reading certain works of literature? What is the power of literature? And we don't have to be able to say it does this for this reason, but to say that you expose yourself to certain moods, to certain content, to certain forms, and that that impacts you is, I think, part of taking literature seriously. And you've just shown us that in a really interesting way. Does that sound like a fair response to what you said, Erica? I mean, this is your- I think your, so. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I don't want to say, therefore, this book should be put aside because it's dangerous for your mind. I suppose just hearing what you had to say about it, and also, I didn't have as acute of an experience, but I did feel a bit dragged down by it. And mm. I would say that made me question how to think about the value of a work of literature. Facing things that are difficult, having difficult emotions, that can be a really productive part of life. That's not inherently a sign of less value. So how do you calculate it? I think that the themes, the content that she's looking at is really, really vital, actually, especially for this moment. How do we break through old conventions? Can we make a better world? Can we do things differently in a way that's good? I think that's vital. So I think literature can do this, but I guess I just didn't feel it coming together. (laughs) Mm. You know, I felt it it continued to be fragmented Mm. in my experience, even through the golden notebook and at the end. I noticed that a lot of times in descriptions of the book, people will say, and she tries to bring it together in the golden notebook, where there's a slightly, there's a modifier there. Then there's another level in which the whole book is called the golden notebook. And it is a book that's holding together all these parts by representing them. It almost becomes a circle, actually, because at the end, Saul, the American that she has this brief but intense affair with. Intensely toxic. (laughs) Yeah, pretty pretty toxic. But they each write the first line of the other's next novel. And that first line that he writes is the first line of the first free women section. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a circle in and of itself, right? So maybe there's a wholeness there. I think one thing that I want to say, though, is this question of like what you said about it being of its time, I think is important. The historical situation is really important because there's so much happening in the world in the 1950s. You know, this is like post-World War II. Everything has changed in certain respects. Now the information is coming out about what Stalin has done in the Soviet Union. Shout out to Anna Akhmatova Mm -hmm. from last episode. This is the, the moment where like, capitalism is ramping up into its next gear. There's so much change happening too, because now it's post-war, the backlash against women's empowerment through work during the war is happening. This is the decade in which a whole lot of ideas of fermenting and fomenting before they're going to break out in the 1960s. So... There's a lot that's going on, I think, in this novel that's almost about that kind of roiling 
societal change that's kind of simmering and simmering and building to a boil. Maybe if there is a, a sense of unity at the end or kind of hope that persists, it has to do with that willingness, nevertheless, to live in the turmoil of life beyond the forms that were familiar. Because Anna doesn't, she continues to make choices that keep her on that route, even when her friend Molly goes into a conventional marriage. At one point, she says, perhaps next time I'll try to write about that. People who deliberately try to be something else, try to break their own form, as it were. So the yeah. recrafting of form, but also trying to live unconstrained by form. That seems to speak so much to what was at the heart of Doris Lessing's drive for telling the truth in literature. And now we're going to, true to form, return to our usual form, which is an interview. Since we actually haven't spoken so much about the feminist aspects of this novel, save for Doris Lessing's own frustration with the feminist movement, we thought that we would talk to Professor Susan Watkins about these questions. She is a professor of women's writing and the director of the Center for Culture and Arts in the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University. She's also the author of Doris Lessing in the Manchester University Press Contemporary World Writers Series and with Alice Rideout is also the co-editor of Doris Lessing Border Crossings. Welcome, Susan. We're so delighted to have you on Literate. So our first question is a very broad one. When did you first read Doris Lessing, and what made you want to study her work? Well, I remember first reading Martha Quest, which is the first volume in the Children of Violence series in my undergraduate English degree. And the thing that I remember most about it is that there was this strange moment where Martha has this weird epiphany walking back from town across the South African veldt. And it's described in such a strange way. So that even that early in her writing career, there's that pressure against the form of realism already that I think she then goes on to build on so much in The Golden Notebook. So then I went on to postgraduate work and finished the Children of Violence sequence. And I couldn't believe that the last novel takes the whole sequence into the future, into science fiction, into the end of the world as we know it, into this apocalyptic scenario. I decided I wanted to write about epiphany in my PhD. And obviously then at that point, I realised just how extensive Lessing's oeuvre was, the amount that she'd written, although of course this was in the late 80s, early 90s, so she was still publishing. I also encountered this huge amount of speculative fiction, which I hadn't realised that she'd written at that point. And then of course, I encountered The Golden Notebook right there in the middle of her writing life. That leads so nicely into our next question, which is, can you tell us a little more about where The Golden Notebook fits, how it fits into Lessing's writing life, into mm. her corpus? The Golden Notebook comes after the third of the Children of Violence sequence and before the last two. It kind of interrupts her writing of that sequence 
it's a way in which I think she kind of revolutionized her own thinking about the purpose of writing, what you could do with the shape of a novel, what the novel was in effect. She was disillusioned with communism. She was disillusioned with the emergence of the Cold War, with political engagement generally. The novel is about how women can live differently. It's about abandoning conventional family and sexual relationships. But I think most of all, it's about how difficult it is to write anything when you've got that feeling of disillusionment, when you don't know what the point of writing is anymore, when what's the point of a novel at this difficult period in history, in a sense. There's so much about it that resonates with the particular moment that we're in right now, I think, in quite uncanny ways. And I guess one of these questions that came up to me again and again is thinking about the novel as, as staging these questions of other ways of doing things, being counter-cultural in many ways and thinking through power dynamics within organizations, but also within relationships. Is this a feminist novel? And I know I'm not the first to ask this question. And I know that Lessing herself was fairly cherry about the novel's relationship to feminism, perhaps her own relationship to feminism. What do you think, Susan? Is this a feminist novel? Well, if I could just go back a little bit to the time of writing before I answer that. I mean, one of the things that she talked about was this word trauma. So she says in the introduction from 1971 to the novel that the actual time of writing and not only the experiences that had gone into the writing was really traumatic. That idea of almost a kind of therapeutic engagement with issues that she had dealt with and needed to explore, but also a more social trauma, in a sense, going back to what you were saying about its um, resonances with now. I think that's part of the time of writing. And I think also she was working towards the sense that writing can do more than just mirror reality. So in other words, in order for it to be truthful, which isn't the same as mirroring anything, you've got to find new forms and modes. And so that recognition generates a move out of realism, not a permanent abandonment of it by any means, but a move into a kind of quasi-realism accompanied by other forms like gothic, science fiction, speculative fiction, apocalyptic fiction, etc. And I think that connects to that question of whether or not it's a feminist novel, because I think that it's partly about the form In a sense, what she's showing us, I think, is that through the form of a novel, as well as its content, you can make a point about coherence, about subjectivity, and about how that connects to ideas about gender. So what you were saying about the counterculture, that sense of the validity of experimenting with different forms of writing, experimenting with different forms of ideas about mental health and madness and fragmentation and all of those things, I think that's partly a gendered issue and it's partly a formal issue in terms of how the book's written and those two things connect together. I think it's a novel that critiques patriarchal conventions, it tries to get us to rethink our assumptions about women and gender, about what it means to be a free woman. As you say she was always equivocal about the term feminism and of course there are feminisms plural rather than just one feminism so it depends how you define it. But I think because it's at a tangent to conventional assumptions and expectations about women, about women's bodies, women's lives, especially women's sex lives, about what it means to be a free woman, and because it makes that point through the form as well as through the content, you can't really separate the two, 
then I think it can be considered a feminist novel. I mean, it's so honest in its discussion of menstruation, for example. Rachel Blaudy Plessis calls it the first Tampax in world literature. <laughs> you know, it's one yeah. of the few novels that I can think of that actually discusses menstruating and, and what that is like. It probably hasn't stood the test of time well in terms of its treatment of sexuality with all of this stuff about the vaginal orgasm. Although, remember, the views espoused are those of the characters, not necessarily Lessing's. And I also think that some of what the characters have to say about same-sex sexuality possibly are a bit more difficult for us to deal with now. Although, again, they're voiced by the characters who are, of course, all multiple versions of each other anyway and embedded within each other. So with a few kind of... um, provisos, then I would say it's a feminist novel. Thank you. That also leads to the final question, because you've talked about how this stands the test of time or how certain elements of this book stand the test of time. And our final question is, is The Golden Notebook one of the books of the century? Would you pick it out of Lessing's prolific body of work? I think now that it was more important for the time in which it was written and its immediate legacy than for the whole century or for now. I know that you maybe weren't expecting me to say that, but I think (laughs) it is what Henry James would call a loose baggy monster as well. Mm. (laughs) It's so long. It's so complex formally. There's so much in it. There's so much mirroring and repetition and doubling. It's ambitious. It's, It's just challenging, I think. I haven't taught it with students for a long time. And if I was going to pick any of her novels now, I would pick The Grass is Singing, all Memoirs of a Survivor, all The Fifth Child, all The Good Terrorist above The Golden Notebook, purely because I think that they offer more immediate entry points for the reader. But that's not to say that I don't think it's still an important book. I'm just not sure that it would be one of the books of the century. Thank you so much, Susan, for these reflections and for bringing your wealth of knowledge on Lessing to Bear. You're welcome. So, Alicia, after all of that, what do you think? Is The Golden Notebook one of the books of the 20th century? No. Okay. I think that <laughs> I think that better readers than I am would disagree with me. And not only do I think that, I know that, that they have. It has a lot to commend it. And it's formally interesting. She's trying to write a novel of ideas. It's metafictional sort of ahead of its time. And it draws on this incredible desire to tell the truth and to be unrelenting in that search for truth. It reflects aspects of women's lives in ways that were innovative and transgressive at the time that I probably benefit from all of these transgressions and acts that were really important for their time. And I think that it remains relevant and interesting to read, especially if you have an interest that overlaps with one of its many themes. So many. So many. So this is a really good book, and she is an incredibly gifted writer. And it also tells me something about its historical moment. It gains richness as I learn more and think more about it in relation to its historical moment. However, I'm not convinced that its value endures in the way that 
I would want from my own personal list of the books of the century. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it could have done with a bit of editing, <laughs> but maybe that was part of the point. Susan called it a loose and baggy monster. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that when there are so many good books to read in the world and so little time, this takes up a lot of time. So would I put it on my list that I recommend if you're going to read some books from the last century, these are the ones? I would say no. I don't think it's quite worth the costs it entails in reading it in terms of time, in terms of potentially emotional fallout. And I think that other books from the same time period can give us some of those goods. So, no. That's a pretty definitive answer there, Alicia. Well, I did think a lot about this question while reading the book, but what do you think, Erica? You, yeah. I... I actually agree with you. Ah. When are we going to disagree about these things? <laughs> I thought we would disagree this time. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this a lot, actually, while I was reading it as well. And I admire this book for what it does. I admire Lessing for writing it. She said she wrote it yeah. chronologically, which is kind of amazing mm. if she did, to keep it all in her mind. I admire her. I admire her prodigious talent the variety of things that she wrote. And I haven't read enough of her writing to be able to comment on her entire oeuvre. But yeah, this is a long book and it is really rich. It's full of ideas and themes that can be touched on and that do resonate today in all kinds of ways. It was formally groundbreaking and I can appreciate it for that. But the question I was asking as I was reading it also is what are the criteria for a book of the century? Does something need to continue to resonate today in particular ways? We said yes to Anna Akhmatova because we said there's a, this kind of historical meaning, this testimony, this, this witnessing that that cycle of poems does. This also is an act of witness in a way. It's working in a different genre, but it is a witness of mm. that time. And for that reason, it's valuable. And not just for that reason, of course. It's an immense and monumental work, really. But I do think that one of the things that I want in my list of books of the 20th century is greater pleasure. Hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking about Anna Wolfe, and I was thinking about Virginia Woolf, Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about To the Lighthouse, Mm -hmm. which also gets you into the mindset of others and makes you think along with them. And these are the products of two very different historical moments. I get that. But they, they both have a kind of a seriousness and they both are playing with the form of the novel. And so they're comparable in some way. And I just enjoyed reading To the Lighthouse much more. The experience of going into it was more enjoyable. It was just a greater pleasure for me than this one. That's not to say I don't think it's a worthwhile book to read. I think there's a lot to be gained from it and to be thought through with it. And it certainly rewards your attention and your teasing out the different threads. But I agree with you, Alicia. I don't think I'd want this on my list of the books of the century.
So it's the final section, the final chapter, and we are about to be free women because we have finished our conversation. Indeed. And I hope that our listeners will weigh up the different perspectives presented in this formally experimental version of our podcast. We'd like to thank the other women who participated in this episode. Alice Rideout, Roberta Rubenstein, and Susan Watkins. Thank you, Alice, Roberta, and Susan for talking to us and sharing your insights and your different perspectives on this important book. All original music was made again by me. Thank you, Erica. That's always such a pleasure. On the next episode, in two weeks' time, we'll be reading Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart. Want to read along? Please do. And this one's much shorter. Yes. We'd also love to hear from you, as ever. So please get in touch with your thoughts on the book or on this episode. You can read more about the podcast on literatepodcast.com, or you can find us on Twitter on at literatepodcast, or email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please give it a rating, give it a review. Click subscribe on whatever you use to listen to your podcasts. Also, excitingly, we have a bookshop.org list of all the books for this season and last season. You can find a link to it on our website. If you don't know, Bookshop is a platform that lets you order books from independent bookstores. So you can do what we ask you to at the end of every episode, which is, Alicia? To please support your local library. And independent bookshop. (laughs) 